please open your Bibles to John chapter 20, if you haven't already. As you heard Josh say, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, you'll find that on page 589, and in John chapter 20, this morning we'll be in verses 1 through 18. We're picking up this book in the middle of an account, in the very middle of a story, and the story to this point is this, Jesus of Nazareth, though innocent of any crime, has been crucified on a cross, he has been found dead, and then buried in a tomb. And there are three important things that we have learned about the cross so far. Number one, the cross shows us man's rejection of God. You look at the cross of Jesus Christ. We are shown in the cross of Jesus Christ man's rejection of God. Jesus, God's Son, was there on that cross. Because he was rejected by men. Secondly, we have learned that the cross shows us God's love for those who have rejected him. The cross shows us God's love for those who have rejected him. Jesus, God's son, was there. Not only because he was rejected by men, but Jesus, God's son, was there because of his great love for those who reject him. So the cross shows us God's love for those who have rejected him. Jesus was there. We learned this last week, dying as the true Passover lamb. God had said that there must be the shedding of blood if there's going to be any forgiveness of sin. And he told his people that, and we have it in the book of Leviticus, if there's to be forgiveness of sin, there must be the shedding of blood. And on the cross, the perfect life of Jesus was put to death. He was punished in the place of sinners So we see his great love for sinners. And finally, third, the cross shows us the glory of God. Jesus, God's son, was there because he was rejected by men. Jesus, God's son, was there because of his great love for those who had rejected him. And Jesus was there rejected by sinners, dying for sinners, that God may be praised for His glorious grace. That's the end of the cross. Ultimately, the cross shows us the glory of God. The cross is not an echo of my worth and value or your worth and your value if you have been saved by God. The cross is an echo of God's worth and God's value is a display of God's worth, of God's value, of His glory that He would be so loving and so merciful to save people like you and like me. So Jesus was killed and buried on a sad Friday night. And his body lay in the tomb all day Saturday. But then came Sunday morning, roughly 36 hours later. And the events of that Sunday morning are the subject of our study this morning. In fact, the events of that Sunday morning are the reason we study every Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday. So we have here 
In John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, we have John and the resurrection and Mary and the resurrection. You could divide it up that way. And this is Mary Magdalene. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. So you might get them mixed up. We were just looking at Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she stood at the foot of the cross. But this is Mary Magdalene. John and Mary are the very first two to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So that's what we'll be looking at today. John and the resurrection, and Mary and the resurrection. How did John, the author of this book, come to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead? We find out. How did Mary come to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead? That's what we're going to find out. For that matter, and this should be of interest to every single one of us, how does anyone come to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? So how did it happen to John? How did it happen for Mary? For that matter, how does anyone, John, Mary, you, me, how does anyone come to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? But before we preach this sermon, we should pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time we have to listen to the preaching of your word. And we believe, God, in the power and the purpose of this time. And we ask that you would please fill our minds with truth, stir our hearts with love, and bow our wills to obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I came to church early this morning. We had a class, and I brought my little girl, Avery, with me. She's four and really sweet. And she always uh, waits on me and finds out if there's anything that I need and wants to take care of it, like her mom. And... Uh, I had a bunch of trash up here as I was getting things out of my backpack, and I'd had some papers I didn't need, and so I gave them to her, and I said, uh, well, honey, can you throw these away from me? Can you run to the back? Sure, Daddy. So she went and threw them away. She came back. I found some more papers. I said, can you throw these away? She said, sure, Daddy. She went back and threw the papers away. I, I taught the class, and, and then I went back to, to pray with some of the, the leaders and to, and to do some final Final edits on my sermon, which I do almost regularly right up until I come up and stand behind this pulpit. And I was horrified to discover that I had given Avery the wrong papers. And I was missing the last three pages of my edited sermon. So if you saw me nosing through the garbage before service, you're thinking, what is he doing? Poor man, is he hungry? <laughs> There's donuts on the table, sir. I was looking for those last three pages of my sermon, and I got about six, seven inches down, and I had to give up because someone had just dumped their coffee upside down and like stirred it into the garbage. It was a mess, so it was hopeless. So I, I say that. I'm telling you that this morning because I'm a people pleaser and I want to lower your expectations now. And I, I wish I didn't have to do that, but I felt compelled to. So if at some point in this at some point in this sermon it's very possible that you're gonna you're gonna know the point where those notes in the trash started. Because this, this plane is going to just land without the landing gear down. <laughs> it could happen. So first, we have John and the resurrection. 
Okay, John and the resurrection, and that is in the first nine verses of chapter 20. And all of this is going to move to verse 8 when John is going to tell us the moment that he believed. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. It was a Sunday morning, John tells us. If you've heard that God's people used to worship on Saturdays, and you've wondered why most Christians worship on Sundays today, this is why. Our text today explains why. The church has been gathering every Sunday since Acts chapter 20, verse 7. We see that they had switched days. And we still do it today as a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Every week, we're worshiping on Sunday because that is the day, the first day of the week, He was raised from the dead. So we're remembering that. We're celebrating it over and over again. John said it was early Sunday morning, still dark when Mary comes to the tomb. And we know from the other gospel writers that she was not alone. There were some other women who were with her, but imagine the scene. Here's a handful of women in the dark, and they're on the way to a garden where there is a tomb. They're probably going to finish up preparing Jesus for burial. But they were unable to do that on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday. It's probably why they're on their way to the tomb. But there they are in the dark looking for the tomb. And as they get closer, they see that the entrance to the tomb has been Opened. So imagine the scene. Verse 2. So she, Mary, ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John, the author of this book. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. That is her assumption. And that's a logical assumption. Grave robbing was common in this day. Tombs would be broken into and clothes and linens and spices and possessions would be stolen from the tomb. Mary seems to assume that that is what has happened. And so she runs and wakes up Peter and wakes up John to tell them the body is gone. Verse 3. Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Little bragging by John here. Wants us to know he is faster than Peter. But at least he doesn't name himself. John is probably a lot younger than Peter. He's as young as 18 or 19. His heart is pounding. He is running as fast as he can. And I'm sure that he's wondering as he sprints to the tomb of Jesus, as he gets closer and closer to the garden, and then closer and closer to the tomb, What will he find? Verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now I'm sure that John did not go in because he was scared. No way. 
I would have gone in. He approaches this tomb. It's probably still dark. He stoops in to look in the the small opening and with the moonlight, he sees that the body of Jesus is not there. That would be That would be terrifying, especially in the dark. My son, Brady, Brady's 12, and Brady has this fun thing that he likes to do with the rest of us who are scared of the dark. I'm sort of scared of the dark. I don't like the dark. It's not the dark so much as what's in the dark that I, I can't see, and so that scares me. And uh, I think most of my family is like that, except for Brady. Brady just has no fear of the dark. If something needs to, you know, the trash needs to be taken down, this and that, and, you know, we're all saying no way, and Brady says, I'll do it. <laughs> so Brady has this thing where he likes to, whenever we do go outside in pairs, Brady... <laughs> will sneak out a back door, sneak out a back window, and he will hide somewhere, and he will scream to make us scream. I'm pretty sure John was scared. He gets to the tomb, he he looks, and and, and he sees that there is no body in the tomb. I would be done at that point. John also knows, though, that Peter is right behind him, and he knows, right, that Peter will run right in, all brainless and running on emotion. This is what Peter typically does. Thinking is usually a few steps behind his actions. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came, right, following him, and he went into the tomb. So Peter just goes right, Mary didn't go in, John's not going in, Peter just goes right in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and then Peter sees something else. Because he went in, right? And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. Not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. What a weird detail. So Peter enters the tomb, and he looks longer than John looked. Peter's attention is captivated. If you look at these verses, Peter saw, you see that word saw in verse 6? Peter saw in verse 6, and John saw in verse 5. You see that in verse 5 and 6? Same word, they both saw. Same words in our English translation. But this is actually two different words in the original Greek language. John's word means more of a glance, and Peter's word means more of a stare, like he's beholding something. So what has got Peter's attention? What has him curious? John sees him staring and figures he must have missed something. And now with more confidence, now that Peter's in the tomb, John enters the tomb, verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw, that's a new saw. That's another word for seeing. Even more significant, it implies comprehension and understanding of what you're seeing. And John saw and believed. So he saw what Peter saw, but John Believed. Believed what? Well, in verse 9, John tells us what he believed. For as yet, that means up until this point, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You see? But now, John believes it. He believes at this moment that Jesus has risen from the dead. So I'm sure you're curious with me. Let's look back. What did Peter see? What did John see that led him to believe? 
there are many understandings here. And there's been a lot of different ideas that have been proposed over the centuries. But here's what they're seeing at the very least. At the very least, Peter looks in and sees grave cloths lying flat where the body of Jesus was. There's 75 pounds, we know, of spices that were on his body. So it just collapsed. And there are the grave cloths where his body was. And then there was a space where the neck of Jesus was. And then in a place by itself was a separate cloth that would have been wrapped around his face. And that cloth was neatly folded up or rolled up in that place. That's at at least, at the very least, that's what Peter and John saw. That is a plain reading. And that would definitely get you curious, wouldn't it? Some scholars say that this word that is translated folded up, because we're talking about the face cloth, because that's the different thing that Peter saw. Some translators say that this word that we have as folded up actually means it still retained its shape. They say what Peter saw was the grave cloths collapsed because of the weight of the spices and then separated the head covering still in the shape of his head with no head in it. That would freak me out. So Peter stares. And John stares and believes that Jesus has raised from the dead. Think about it. What thief would leave behind the grave cloths? What thief wouldn't take the expensive spices that were there? What thief would fold up the head covering? No, John says to himself. Know what happened. He rose from the dead. I know what happened. He puts it together. He rose from the dead. Maybe his body sort of dematerialized and passed just through these grave cloths like like he seemed to pass through a locked door. We'll read about that this night with the disciples. Or maybe he just sat up and took off his grave cloths and put them back and folded them up neatly in place. Either way, John knows that he's alive I think John here remembers the words of Jesus back in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And it clicks. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 22. When therefore... He was raised from the dead. His disciples, and I think John here, remembered that he had said this. and They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, there is John's account of how he came to believe in the resurrection. Now, one little side note before we move on to Mary. That is a very big deal how John comes to believe in the resurrection because most people came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus after seeing him alive. John's testimony is that he came to believe that Jesus had been resurrected before he even saw Jesus alive. So faith comes unexpectedly for us and sooner to John 
than we might expect. So what about Mary? We have John in the resurrection, but we've got Mary in the resurrection. How did Mary come to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead? Mary needed more than just grave clothes, but no body. She needed much more. She will need to see Jesus, and she will. In fact, Mary will hold, Mary Magdalene will hold this honored position forever. She was the very first person to see Jesus resurrected. So what an account here we have from John. Let's turn to verses 10 through 18 now and look at Mary and the resurrection. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Well, Mary is weeping, we're told. How could things get any worse for Mary? How could this situation get any worse? As if Friday wasn't bad enough. What an absolute disaster. His body is gone. What's on Mary's mind? What's causing her to weep? She says it the same thing in verse 2 and in verse 13. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And I do not know where they have laid him. Where is Jesus? That's her concern. Where is his body? She needs his body to grieve. She wants another opportunity, even if it's just his body, to sit with him. To serve him in a way that she planned perhaps to serve him one more time in preparing him for his burial. To say goodbye. Things that many of you have experienced and done after you've lost someone that you've loved. And so she's there at the tomb and she is weeping. Apparently she hadn't looked in the tomb yet. So now she does and sees not only there's no body, now there's two bodies, two angels. And we're told one where Jesus' feet were and one where his head was. So I presume, and then in between them, you can picture this, right? The grave cloths and the head covering. And then on either side, these two angels. And I thought this was very interesting. She's not terrified. I mean, you remember me, I'm already terrified if I'm in this scene. And then to walk in and to see two angels, she's, she's not terrified. In fact, if, if these are the same angels that Matthew talks about, they're the ones that came and terrified the guards that were put there. One of them even fainted. Mary is not terrified. In fact, one of the angels asks her, woman, why are you weeping? Isn't it encouraging that even angels are puzzled by the tears of women? Why are you crying? So she repeats what she said in verse 2. And then I can only assume she saw a shadow or she heard something or she sensed that there was some sort of presence. She turns around 
because Jesus is there, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Okay, I need to stop here and point something out. Mary is blind. Mary is absolutely clueless. Think about John and what he had to see. Now think about Mary. I mean, it is fair to say that Mary is missing some serious clues. I mean, look back at this with me. How about the, the open tomb with no guards? Not just an open tomb with no guards, but now an empty tomb. And what about the grave cloths that are lying flat on the slab? What about the, the face covering that is folded up all nicely and neatly, a next length away from the grave cloths? How about the angels that are in the tomb? And now, Jesus is right next to her. And she thinks he's the gardener. That's what we're just told. She thinks he's the gardener. So maybe John's point here is that, hey, I'm faster than Peter and I'm smarter than Mary. I mean, is that, what, is that the point? Is that why John is telling us all of this? I mean, how can Mary not see this? There's been different ideas. Some have said that she can't see through her tears because she's weeping so much. But come on. No way. No way. I've cried some pretty serious tears and I can still see. Some have said that Jesus is in this, no joke, that Jesus is in this sort of weird transitional state. And that his body hasn't completely morphed yet. And that's why in verse 17, he tells Mary, do not touch me. Because she'll screw up his metamorphosis if she does. Now, that was written seriously in books. But I laughed too. This is going to happen to some others too. There's a couple disciples on the road to Emmaus that don't, that don't get it, that don't recognize him. There's some disciples in a boat on the lake of Tiberias, and, and they don't recognize Jesus at first. One painting, I think it was painted in like the 1500s, paints this scene and it has Jesus sort of disguised as a gardener. Like he's messing with her. And he's got like this wide-brimmed hat. and That's not what he's doing. He's not standing next to her with his wide-brimmed hat, sort of down with a leaf blower in front of him. <laughs> I'm just a gardener. That's not... It can't be that. So we've got to think. This is all for, we've got to think. Holy Spirit, help us to think rightly. Help us to see this clearly. Why are you telling us this? I think there's a deeper answer here as to why Mary cannot see Jesus. I think there's a theological answer. An answer found everywhere in the Bible. Why doesn't Mary see Jesus? And I would say, she can't. It's impossible. It's impossible. It is 
inconceivable. It just won't enter the mind that this is Jesus. This gardener may have a striking resemblance to Jesus, but it is obviously not Jesus because Jesus is dead. Your mind is not going to go there. It is impossible. There is something, this is what I would propose, there is something in Mary that keeps her from seeing and believing. There is something in us that keeps us from seeing and believing. Jesus will need to reveal himself to Mary. Jesus will need to break through, which he does in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. That's it. Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She is awakened by the call of Jesus. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, the third verse? The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out of the tomb. What an amazing illustration of those words of Jesus that John recorded. What an amazing illustration that John now gives us. So Mary, I believe, then falls down at the feet of Jesus and clings to him and holds him as tightly as she possibly can. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. That is a strong word that's used there. It probably means like holding on very, very tightly with no intention of letting go. So it's like you've, you're rock climbing or mountain climbing and you slip and you get a rock or you get a branch and if you let go, you're dead. There is no way you're letting go. That's the kind of clinging we're talking about here. So she's, She has got Jesus in a hold and it's clear to Jesus that she has no intentions of letting him go and he says, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Verse 17 is one of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament to discern. I do not know what Jesus means in verse 17 when he says this to Mary. I have no idea what Jesus means when he says this to Mary. I hope I do someday, and I want to keep trying, but I don't have that light yet. Maybe, maybe it means something like this. I don't think this is a harsh rebuke. I think this is with a smile when Jesus says this, but maybe it's something like this. Mary, you can let go of me. I'm not going anywhere yet. I will ascend to be with the Father soon, though, so go and tell my disciples that I am going to go and that I am ascending soon and that I won't be here much longer, but I'll be here when you get back. Maybe that's what he's saying. Mary obeys Jesus, and she leaves him, verse 18, our final verse. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. And so Mary leaves and becomes the very first missionary. The very first to go and tell people about the risen Christ. So there it is. There is John's account of how he and Mary came to believe 
in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, so what? So what? You should always ask yourself that question when you are reading your Bible. You should definitely always ask yourself that question when you are listening to a sermon and you're getting all this information. Okay, so what? What's the intention here? What's the purpose here? So what? So, maybe I should have done this earlier. I decided not to. I didn't think that we needed this sooner. I think it'll be more helpful now. We should talk now for a moment about Mary Magdalene. Who is she? And John devotes some significant verses to her and tells us the account of how she came to believe in the resurrection. And it's a, it's a strange way all that had to happen for her to come to believe in the resurrection. And so, who is this Mary Magdalene? We do not know a lot about her, but what we do know is really helpful. But let me first say this. As I was looking for information about who Mary Magdalene is, here is one reason that you should not take Wikipedia too seriously. And I hope you don't take Wikipedia too seriously. I, I was appalled at what Wikipedia had to say about Mary Magdalene. Look at what is, look, I'll just read it to you. This is what is, and this is, con, this is out there, so I want you to hear it. This is what is presented as fact on Wikipedia. Because even Wikipedia will say things like, we're not sure about this, we're not sure about that, or this is one theory, this is one theory. But listen to how it's presented. This is who Mary Magdalene was. Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala, and sometimes called the Magdalene, is a figure in Christianity who was Jesus' wife. It's it worse. Pregnant with his child, at the time of his crucifixion, Mary went into hiding soon to be lost in time. This is laughable. The priori swore to protect her sarcophagus and holy grail and Christ's bloodline. Through many centuries of witch hunting, years and years later, was a large cover-up for what was essentially the killing of many women in attempt to end the bloodline. So the Vatican could stay in control and continue their own ways as Christianity, the religion we know, was created from a worship of paganism from the Saint Constantine who was baptized on his deathbed. These are all like run-on sentences, by the way. She also was one of the figures in the, I don't know if you knew this, in the depiction of the Last Supper to the left of Jesus. That wasn't John, it's a mirror image. Leonardo da Vinci symbolized the gift that is woman in the V-shape between them, the negative space. Fact. I'm pretty sure that was like a fiction book called The Da Vinci Code, and they made a movie about it. Good night. Oh, that's who she was. All makes sense now. <laughs> All right, what do we actually know? Well, her name, Mary Magdalene. That means that she was a Magdalene. She was from Magdala, like Jesus was Jesus, a Nazarene, and he was from Nazareth. Magdala was a town on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. It was a sort of resort town, and apparently it was known for its immorality. There is strong early church tradition, we don't know this for sure, that claims Mary Magdalene was a prostitute there in Magdala. There's strong evidence for that, not biblical evidence, so we won't take that too far. We also know this about Mary Magdalene. She deeply loved Jesus. That's obvious in our text today, isn't it? She's weeping. She is there early in the morning. When everyone else, including Peter and John, leaves, she's got nowhere else to go. She parks it right there. Even though his body is gone, 
and continues to weep. And I'm thankful for this. We also, from the Bible, know why Mary Magdalene loved Jesus so much. She loves Jesus so much because he saved her life. He saved this woman's life, we're told in Luke chapter 8. In Luke 8, we're told that she was a woman from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know exactly what that means. But she was, to say the very least, severely mentally ill. At the very least. There was a day when Mary Magdalene was severely mentally ill. She was completely broken. And Jesus put her back together. He healed her. He changed her. That was his first miracle with her. Today is the second. She then became a part of a small band of women that supported Jesus and his disciples. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Luke 7, 47, where he says, Those who have been forgiven much love much. I suspect that Mary Magdalene knew how much she had been forgiven for. And she loved Jesus all the more. So that's what we know for certain about Mary Magdalene. So that helps us because in conclusion, I'd like to give three observations of Mary and Jesus. But we just read there in those eight verses. And these are the three, and then I'll just say a couple things about each of them. Number one, Mary was an unlikely choice. Number two, Mary was blind until Jesus called her by name. And number three, Mary then held on to Jesus and would not let him go. Three observations. So number one, Mary was an unlikely choice. Of all the people. Remember this this high honor that Mary of Magdala holds. She is the very first person who saw Jesus raised from the dead. And it should be obvious to you that Jesus sought her out. So here is Jesus making sure out of all the people that were on the face of the planet at that moment, he decides that Mary Magdalene will be the first one to see him risen from the dead. And she is, you would think, an unlikely choice. He doesn't go to a king somewhere. He doesn't go to his mother. He doesn't go to a family member. He doesn't go to one of the disciples. He appears to Mary Magdalene. He appears to a woman. That was so unlikely in that day. Women were were looked down upon in this culture. He reveals himself to a woman. He reveals himself to a woman who who may have been a prostitute, who may have been a mental patient, who has this sordid past. She's the one whom Jesus chooses to reveal himself to. That is an unlikely choice. So what? What does that mean? That means very clearly That salvation does not come to you based on merit. That means that if God saves you, it is not because of something good in you. 
It's not because you belong to this part of society or you belong to this class or you've got this great family name or you've got this great history or you've got this great reputation or you're really successful. Or It doesn't have anything to do with any of that. Okay, God, how do you make that point to us in our text today? Mary Magdalene, that's who's going to see me first on that Sunday morning. So that it will be very clear that God chooses the weak. And God chooses the lowly. And God chooses the humble. Friends, you better be weak. You better be humble. You better be lowly. That's all over the Bible, isn't it? I mean, it's said very explicitly, and then you have example after example after example, people like David, Gideon, even Jesus himself, who he was and where he came from was unlikely. And now here, Mary Magdalene. So that's the first observation. Mary was an unlikely choice. Second observation, I think we made this clear, Mary was blind. She could not see Jesus. And yet I would say that Mary had advantages that we do not. If anybody's going to believe that Jesus raised from the dead, I think it would be Mary seeing the open tomb, the empty tomb, the grave cloths, the face covering, the angels, Jesus standing right next to her, and she's just blind. She doesn't see. So what does that mean for me and my hope of believing that Jesus raised from the dead? Mary's right there next to Jesus raised from the dead. And she cannot, she does not see it. She had walked with Jesus throughout his ministry. She had seen his miracles. She knew, she had heard Jesus talk about over and over again that he was going to rise from the dead. Did you think about that? Jesus clearly talked about that in his ministry over and over again. He was going to rise from the dead. Even his enemies knew that. That's why in Matthew chapter 27, the Jews, after he's in the tomb, says we need to get guards outside the tomb. Because his enemies knew that, hey, he said he was going to rise from the dead. And we're afraid some disciples are going to come steal his body and say, hey, he rise from the dead. So we need to put, even his enemies knew that he said that. So Mary had heard him say that. And yet here she is right next to Jesus and she is blind. She cannot see it. Why? Because faith is impossible. Belief is impossible. Believing the gospel is impossible. Believing that Jesus came, lived, and suffered in the place of sinners, that he died and rose again in the place of sinners so that sinners could be forgiven. To believe that, that is impossible. It's not a matter of having enough evidence presented to you good night mary had all the evidence she was there jesus was standing beside her and she did not see she did not believe she did not have faith until jesus called her by name and friends you will not believe until jesus calls you by name and if you have believed, you have believed because Jesus called you by name. You did not just figure it out. You're not smarter than the person next to you. You're not more intelligent than the unbeliever. You are not more educated. You are not more spiritually sensitive. There is one reason. And it is, as Jesus has said, God the Father has drawn you 
to his son, Jesus. That's what he does for Mary. Friends, faith is not a gift to God. Faith is a gift from God. Do you have faith today? That is not your gift to God. That is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is a gift from God. Or think about Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Report comes back in Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Report comes back to the disciples that Gentiles, this was a big surprise, Gentiles are having faith and repenting and turning to Jesus. And do you remember how they praise God? The disciples says, well, look at this. God has even granted the Gentiles repentance to life. They don't say, praise the Gentiles. They have placed their faith in Christ and repented. They say, praise God. He has granted them repentance. He's drawn them, the Bible says. He has opened their eyes, the Bible says. He has opened their ears, the Bible says. He has taken their hardened heart, the Bible says. Mary's faith here is not a gift to God. Her faith is a gift from God. And think about this. Those of you who are Christians here this morning, don't you still blind sometimes? Even as Christians, how often are we still blind to the goodness of God? To the presence of God? the mercy of God. What a picture we have of that here. I mean, here is Mary. Think about this. As devastated as she has ever been. And Jesus is right next to her. That will preach. There's Mary at the ultimate from her vantage point. She's at the low point of her life. Could this get any worse? She's weeping. She's devastated. And while she is weeping and while she is devastated, Jesus is right beside her. She just doesn't see him. How often do we when walls are caving in around us, run around and forget the promises of God. Mary, I told you, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to conquer death. And yet she sees the empty tomb and she doesn't say he is risen. She says, where's the body? I mean, that's us. That's what I do. She was blind until Jesus called her by name. And then finally, Mary, once Jesus has called her by name, she holds him and does not want to let him go. That's a really great picture of the Christian life, isn't it? It's the way it should be. I was blind. And then he gave me sight. And I could see in ways I could never see before. And now I am holding him. I am clinging to him tightly. And I will never ever let him go. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the account we have here of John and the resurrection and Mary and the resurrection. God, it is so clear that this is your work, this is something you do. 
Here are two different people coming to you in very different ways, both in ways that we would not expect. And it is you and it is your word and it is your work that opens their eyes. Father, for those of us who are here today who have had our eyes opened, 